I feel very passionate about women finding a way to empower themselves to deal with, with what's going on in our lives, both in the world today, in our bodies, and, and just being as prepared as, it's almost like an armor, just being as prepared as we possibly can be for, for you know, the next uh, phase of our lives. Hey, this is Carolee Walker, a writer living in beautiful Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. I can hardly believe it, but in January, I turned 60. To celebrate, I had brunch at the Fork Restaurant in Philadelphia, and after a delicious meal, including a mimosa with freshly squeezed orange juice, the restaurant staff graciously offered to move us to a private room in order to record this podcast. Taking over the episode is my daughter, Mia, my son, Aiden, my niece, Nina, an architecture student in Philadelphia, and Julian Muller, Mia's partner. The kids asked me some unexpected questions, some of them very personal, and I did my best to answer on the fly and mostly truthfully. And we talked about my book, Getting My Bounce Back, too. It was fun being on this side of the microphone, and I think all of us learned a thing or two. Please send me your comments and your ideas through my website at caroleewalker.com or you can find me on Twitter at Walker. Getting My Bounce Back is now available everywhere. So this is it. The kids take over. Enjoy. I'm Aiden. I'm your son. I'm Mia, your daughter. I'm Nina, her niece. I'm Julian, your future son-in-law. Oh, yes. Thank you all for being here. I'm so excited. So, yeah, it's, uh, we had a great uh, brunch. It was really nice to be able to come to Philadelphia and have brunch with you all. Um, and uh, the city is looking so fantastic. The Fork has been a great place to have brunch. And they were so gracious to allow us to make this recording here. So let's get started. So our first question... Uh, I'm I'm 23, about to be 24 in a couple weeks, and um, what what were you doing when you were 23? Wow, wow. Um, well, I was living in Baltimore. I was going to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. Uh, what had happened to me was I, when I graduated college, uh, I had a little bit of a journey, but I eventually went to Baltimore and I was working at WJZ TV as a production assistant um, for the Consumer Reporter, Aaron Moriarty. The story behind that was uh, we lived, we were neighbors, we lived a couple doors away from each other, and I worked in Washington, D.C., commuted on the train, and then when I got home, I would walk our dog, Skipper. And that was around the time that she got home from work at WJZ and walked her dog. So we walked our dogs together pretty regularly, and at some point she asked me if I would be her... Uh, production assistant, the consumer news researcher, and I thought that was fantastic, and I went through the full interview process at WJZ-TV, and I was hired. Um, I didn't have a background in television, I did have a background in newspaper journalism, so it wasn't a huge stretch. However, on my very first day, just before the show aired, it was the nightly news with Jerry Turner at the time, and um, the producer came running over to me five minutes before uh, the show was about to start and said, where are your effing chirons? And I was like, 
Chirons? Like, what's a Chiron? He was like, oh my God, who are they hiring? And he stomped off. And so that was my first day on the job at WJZ. But it was a great experience. I learned a lot. And while I was there, it helped me kind of decide what I wanted to do with my career at the moment. So I had decided I wanted to study art history and do some form of art book publishing. So I went, I left WJZ, I went to school full-time at Johns Hopkins to get my master's, and I worked at night, uh, no, I went to school at night and worked during the day at Louis Bookstore Cafe as a bartender, and I, um, so when I was 23, um, it was uh, prior to uh, getting engaged and getting married to your dad, Bob, so I believe at 25 I was still in graduate school and working... um, uh, during the day as a bartender. Did you know that? I knew bits and pieces of it, but I didn't realize that it was when you were that young that you were doing all of that. Yeah. So I was, you know, in some ways, um, I wasn't a hundred... When I graduated college, I was an econ major. I wasn't a hundred percent sure what it was that I wanted to do with my life. I had done journalism in college for... But there was no journalism major, per se, And I was unsure how I wanted to apply those skills and that interest, so I was kind of discovering myself a little bit. Cool. I have a question. Yeah. What was the sort of political and social climate like at that time when Um, you graduated college? Well, I don't know the exact details, but Ronald Reagan was elected president. And I do remember um, at that time feeling that the country was very much divided that there was, um, there were so many people, like he would, I remember a particular debate, and Reagan didn't answer the questions in any substantive way, and his opponent, who I think was Walter Mondale, appeared much more knowledgeable and educated. But the next day, in all the, um, the polls, it was overwhelming that Reagan won that debate. It was a time where we were very much divided, um, and uh, I do remember that. It was a great experience working at the television station. Um, In some ways, um, I often uh, wish I had stayed um, because I think I would have, television journalism actually might have been a place that I would have found my career because it was, and looking back on it now, I think it's a much more creative medium than people think. And at the time, um, I was so convinced that print journalism was the future that I saw television journalism as not being as, you know, valid, for example. For example, as a consumer news uh, production assistant, I um, pretty much worked eight hours um, researching, filming, doing field producing with the reporter, the story, and then sitting with the editor to edit the story. And it would take eight hours to do all of that, and then it was a two-minute story. So I often felt that there was so much energy going into the production and the technology that with print journalism, that eight hours of energy was going into the story. So in my mind, being very, you know, um, uh, idealistic, just having graduated from college, I felt that my place was better off in print journalism. But looking back, I, um, in some ways, I don't think I fully appreciated or understood just how creative technology was going to get. So... Everybody, I don't regret. I don't regret anything. Um, I'm glad I tried it, and it's definitely you know what I learned during that year. I've definitely taken with me in other aspects of my life. Were you exercising at the time? 
No, I was not exercising at the time. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about as I turned 60 a couple of days ago is um, I think one of the things that, that messed me up, sort of like complicated things for me, was that when I was 23, I didn't need to exercise. You know, I was in great shape. I was naturally healthy. I was born with great genes. And I was uh, super, you know, I was, uh, I was fit. I had endless energy. I didn't have to sleep at night. I could eat whatever I wanted to eat. In fact, working in a news station, we worked really long hours. I mean, we, we scheduled our cameras, you know, by 6.45 in the morning for the day. And our news broadcast wasn't over till you know, I guess 7 or 7.30. So we did these long days. We ate whatever we wanted. As a matter of fact, Oprah Winfrey was in the station in the year that I was there. She was uh, uh, the co-host of People Are Talking, and she was in the newsroom with us. And very often we would all have lunches together as a group, and it wasn't always necessarily the healthiest. It would, you know, it would be whatever people would bring in. So I did not ever think or utter the word exercise when I was 23. And I think in many ways that was, that was a mistake because... When I started to age, certainly in my 40s, I can particularly remember around 43, I needed to exercise. But again, I didn't know that word. I didn't have an exercise habit. I ne- it wasn't part of my life. And at that point, I, my, my body had changed sufficiently. I'd had uh, two children. I had started the aging process uh, after my childbearing years, and I no longer, and I really needed to exercise. I no longer felt great. I no longer was fit. I didn't have the energy to go all day from 6 in the morning until whatever at night. Um, and so it, what I know now, turning 60 and having a significant exercise habit, I can only imagine how much easier it would have been to get one in my 40s if I had already been exercising. So that's, that's a, um, a warning to those of you in your 20s and 30s. <laughs> uh, you may not feel like you need it then, but you should be paying attention then because, you know, one of the things I've learned in this journey and I'm really, and I, part of it is that I'm so interested in the topic is that the, the, what happens to women as we age really begins right after our childbearing years. And for many women that's in their forties, um, when your hormone levels drop and your, your body, your metabolism changes, your body runs differently and you need uh, to exercise in order to keep your body healthy. So healthcare is like a big topic overall, probably then and now, but how do you feel about like um, offices and places that people spend most of their time in the workplace, um, their responsibility towards um, helping employees or people live healthy lifestyles and supporting them or gearing them towards exercise or healthy eating habits? It's a really great question because... um, I work in a, a government office that's a fairly traditional setting uh, with, decks, with desks and chairs and monitors. And the government, I think, has invested a fair amount in providing us with ergonomic um, setups for our offices, and you can request an ergonomic uh, assessment that, uh, and, and set up your workspace so that it's, it fits you. But at the end of the day, you're sitting in a workspace. Even if it's ergonomic, you're still sitting. Yeah. And we know now that sitting is, is not healthy. And in fact, it can be dangerous. And I feel it myself. Um, and even if I try to get up and move around, it's not enough. 
And I'm really so excited by the changes that are being made in offices, mostly by people in your generation, recognizing that um, your productivity goes up when you're healthier, mm -hmm. and you have to be able to move around. I've seen, I haven't seen a lot, but I've read about and I've seen offices where the workspace is more fluid. Mm -hmm. uh, people are not tied to one desk. For example, there is one, one bureau in my own office, um, and because of the nature of their work, they nobody has desks or assignments, mm -hmm. and they they have laptops that they carry around to wherever they they're working remotely wherever they are. They go to where they need to be in order to um, follow up follow through on their assignment, and um, and there is a lot of emphasis on mobility. And, yeah. and moving around. And even if you have a standing desk, and I know some people really like those, that can be a relief from sitting, but you can't be standing all day either. The idea is to be mobile. You know, there's lots of data to support that, um, you know, meaningful exercise in addition to moving around during your day and not sitting can lessen your, um, your risk factor for some very significant uh, illnesses and diseases such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Yeah, it probably helps with stress and creativity. I was one of these people that was born with a very optimistic perspective and I would never have described myself as someone who was anxious or had a lot of stress. I have worries like everybody else but I think my, na my nature was to compartmentalize the, um, the competing demands on my time or the competing um, problems that I might be facing, either personally or in the world at large or in the office. But now that I'm older, I've noticed um, in my 50s and uh, my mid-50s, uh, I started to feel some anxiety, and I didn't really know what it was at first. And, um, and it, was, it was hard for me to manage. It was actually making me ill. And the first time I really noticed it, don't laugh. I mean, I know it sounds funny, but, you know, me can tell you, I tried to do a triathlon uh, for the first time a few years ago in, in the ocean. It was the Bethany Beach Triathlon. And I thought that I was doing everything I needed to do to do it. It was, it was a sprint triathlon. It was a swim in the ocean, um, a bike ride at the beach, and then a run. And all those things taken separately, I felt confident being able to do having started an exercise routine um, but when I actually got in the moment and got in the ocean I panicked and really felt like I was drowning I mean I really w did feel like I was drowning and uh, I, I with a lot of coaching and help from the lifeguards in the water they got me through that swim I finished the bike I wasn't able to do the run because there wasn't enough time and then I moved on with my life, and I was training for my marathon, and I was doing my writing, and I was progressing. And then I signed up for another triathlon at the beach after the marathon. It was a little bit shorter one, but it was the same body of water, the same area. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it this time. And I felt really positive about it. But like two or three weeks before, I went into full-out anxiety. Like I, I didn't even know what it was. I thought I had a bug. I thought I was sick. I couldn't eat. I was nauseated. I couldn't sleep, which is actually those things are the worst things to happen before you're going to do some sort of athletic event because mm -hmm. you need to be sleeping. You need to be resting, and uh, you need to be eating properly and eating well, eating a lot of food, definitely not eating less food. So here I was two weeks before this event. I had headaches, migraine headaches, and I went to see my physical therapist, and he, you know, he's not a psychologist, but he said, you're having anxiety. 
And so there was nothing I could do about it. I, I tried lots of things, but I got to the beach. Um, Mia was with me, and uh, actually my swim coach was there too, Terrence Oakley. He decided to sign up as well. So I had everything I needed. I was prepared. The weather was, was great. Um, I had a wetsuit with me. I actually bought the wetsuit. I own the wetsuit. And um, just before the national anthem, I went to get my wetsuit. I went to get it on because we were going to walk down to the beach, and it was gone. It was missing. So I'm already, like, jacked up like crazy with, with anxiety. I haven't eaten in days. Um, I also find out that because of the wind direction, and I only, I, I, when I swim, I don't, I don't turn my head, and I don't breathe on both sides. I only breathe on one side. Just before the event, they announced that because of the wind direction, we were going to be swimming in the direction where my, my, my breathing would be in the horizon instead of the beach. So I'm like, oh, my God, great. So now I'm going to be breathing into the waves instead of into the shore. So I already have that. I go to get my wetsuit on, and it's gone. I mean, Nina, it was gone. It was, it was, wow. there was nowhere. And I could, I mean, Mia was there. I actually, I had trouble getting enough breath to say the words to the person doing the announcing that my wetsuit was gone. And she announced it. And um, as I started walking back to my spot in the transition area, I saw my coach. And he looked at me, and I could tell from his face that he was thinking, oh, I hope it's not her. I hope it's not her. And I looked at him, and all I could say was, can I do this without a wetsuit? And Because I had no idea. I had such anxiety. And then before he could answer, they announced that it, it turned, no, Mia had, it had turned up. And I think what had happened was it was kind of windy, and it must have just blown off the pole. So we started, we started walking. We started walking down to the beach, and I was just—I have never had this experience, and I know people do, and it gives me so much empathy for that kind of anxiety. I—I I really felt both like I was going to throw up. I knew I had no food in my stomach. I mean, it was horrible. And the only thing that sort of gripped me was Mia looked at me and said, "Mom." You signed up for this. You volunteered. <laughs> this is supposed to be fun. And so, you know, I went down to the start, and they, you know, the gun went off, and I went, and it was fine. And what I realized, the point in, in answering your question is that I had trauma from the first event, and I didn't know the signs of being traumatized. Um, and it, I've always, I mean, I, it's made me even more compassionate to people who experience really serious, significant trauma, um, not, not finishing a triathlon or not, like, you, know, uh, you know, feeling like you're going to drown in the ocean. So I've, uh, I don't remember what the question was, but... Um, stress. stress. Stress, yeah. <laughs> so I, um, one of the things I've learned in, in doing endurance exercise, I'm not really good at it, I'm typically towards the back of the pack when I run, and running has been what I have found to be my form of stress relief. I, I'm not a natural runner. I'm not naturally good at it, and I think that's one of the reasons why it provides stress release, relief because, because I'm not naturally good at it and I have to work so hard at it, and it, it makes me focus on what I'm doing in the moment. I think it, it, you know, there's lots of studies that show that that kind of mindfulness ultimately can be a form of stress release, relief because what you're thinking about is 
is the experience you're having in that moment, and it only allows you to think about that moment. So you're not thinking about what could happen or what should happen, and you begin to, it doesn't happen overnight, but whereas in the beginning when I was running in a race, I might be thinking as I'm running that maybe I don't look as good as the woman next to me, is this shirt make me look fat, or um, I'm not going to be able to, you know, finish in any you know, and with a good time, I'm going to be embarrassed, I have to go to the bathroom. You know, all those things would come through my mind when I would be running, and gradually over time, I would learn how to turn my attention back to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if my brain said to me, you don't look good in that shirt, I would say to my brain, okay, well, maybe that's true, but maybe it's not, maybe I look fine. And then I would, you know, keep going, and my brain would send me another idea, like, you can't go anymore, you're done. Uh, which happened to me um, last year at DC Rock and Roll. When I got to like eight miles, I was doing, and eight miles seems to be my moment. You know, I was doing fine, and then all of a sudden I get this message from my brain that says, you know, you're bonking, you're, you've run out of energy, you have no more energy. But I already knew what I had been eating along the way. I was eating like Reese's peanut cups and Swedish fish and goo and. I had a lot of food in me, so there was, like, plenty of fuel. So I had enough presence to say to my brain, no, no, actually, I'm okay. I can do this. And so that's been a real form of stress relief for me in giving me um, the tools I need to, to calm my mind when, um, you know, something comes up that makes me feel those symptoms of stress that I had when I was at the beach. I'm able to, to bring my focus back into my body, into my breath, and take time between like my emotions and my actions. Um, another really good example of that is I was someplace recently. Um, I'm trying to think of what it was. Oh, yeah, it was just like a couple days ago. On my, on my 60th birthday, I decided I was going to go for a... I took the day off from work. And I wanted to do a 10-mile run. I don't know why 10 miles. I just felt like 10 was like a really good number, like an even number. I could do 8, I could do 12, but I was like, you know, I'm going to do 10 miles. And that's the other thing is another form of stress relief for me is like setting goals and, meet, and meeting them. And so I, um, I had a leisurely morning. I didn't set my alarm. I woke up on my body. It was comfortable. I was blessed with good weather. It was um, cloudy, which I like when I run, and it was warm. It was like in the 40s. And I had a meandering run. I went through um, the city, through Connecticut Avenue. I stopped around the zoo with Starbucks and got some water. I went down through Rock Creek, which is so beautiful, and uh, got came out on, on Pennsylvania Avenue and ran by. Um, I was in Foggy Bottom. I ran by Whole Foods. I felt like I needed something, so I zipped into the store and got a tangerine. And when I started to peel the tangerine before I was leaving the store, and I I'm, remember I'm on a run, so I'm not like going to take 10 minutes, you know, to get a piece of fruit and peel it. So I'm trying to peel it, but it was so tight on the on the membrane. I was, you know, I really needed a knife, but I didn't have a knife. So I'm peeling the tangerine, and I was thinking to myself, five years ago, I would be so angry with this tangerine. I would have been cursing it and saying like. <sighs> You know, or if I if I was trying to open up a uh, mayonnaise jar, jar, which happens all the time, and it's really tight, I would be angry. But I remembered thinking as I was peeling the tangerine and smiling, like how much more time I had between my emotion of being frustrated with the tangerine and my action, that I could actually say to myself, okay, let's just take a little bit extra time. Just you know, it'll have to be little bits that I'm peeling it around instead of the big pieces all at once. So, well, the funny thing about it is that I actually did peel it, 
And it was really, it was one of those Matsuma, Satsuma tangerines, you know, the ones that come out like once a year. So delicious and juicy. So, and I was thinking, I don't know how it could be this juicy with the skin so tight. But anyway, that's another, that's for the scientists. So I peeled the tangerine and I had them in my hand and I took, I split the section in half. And I was eating one of the halves and I was thinking to myself, which is now, part of who I am, part of my mindfulness, I was only thinking about how delicious that tangerine was. It was like I could still taste it now. As soon as I walked out of the store, there was a homeless man sitting in front of Whole Foods, obviously, very smart, and he put his hand out when he saw the tangerine like this, and I instinctively gave him the half of my tangerine. And then as I ran down the street, I was like, hmm, did I need that for my run? And I checked in with my body. I'm like, no, I didn't. I'm good with the half. And then there was a light, and I stopped at the red light. And I didn't want him to see me, but I kind of like look at, looked at him, like out of the corner of my eye. And there was actually a policeman talking to him at that point. And I saw him eating that tangerine, and oh my god, he was having as much joy from that tangerine as I had. And so you know, I continued my run, and I was just full of that. And I, uh, ten years ago. I really don't think I would have had the same um, awareness of those kinds of senses, um, and I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have had that much. I didn't have that much space between what I was feeling and the actions I was taking uh, on those feelings. Do you think that comes with age, or do you think that comes with experience, or you know, having exercised, or being more mindful with athletics? You know, my honest, I'm not an expert, but my honest feeling is that it's the opposite. I think that as I was aging, certainly in my 40s, I remember this 43 or so, and into my 50s, which is really what, what got me started on learning how to exercise, was that I had a very short fuse. I, I'm not, I don't have a temper, but I had a short fuse in the sense that if I were in traffic and someone did something stupid in front of me, I would have an immediate reaction of anger. And if you have little immediate reactions of frustration and anger all day long, you're kind of a crabby person. Mm-hmm. And I think that age can do that to you. You have like a short fuse mm-hmm. because I think when you're not feeling so good, you tend to be, I'm just speaking for myself, a little more crabby than I was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, exercise, there may be other ways to do it, but exercise for me, and I didn't know this at the time, I only learned it later. Um, exercise for me has always been hard, and running has always been hard. Um, I would, as a professional woman um, who has pretty high standards, and, and you kids can probably back me up on this, I, my natural instinct is that if you practice something, you get better at it. Mm-hmm. You practice something, you might actually get good at it. But with running, it didn't matter. I would run every day and still be bad at it. And it would always be hard. I was never getting better. And I, I was talking with my physical therapist about this. And, and he said that, you know, that's actually very typical of running. Because run, if you're not like a natural-born runner, running can be very challenging. But exercise in general, in order to progress your level of fitness, you're ne- it's never going to be easy. Just when you get, people talk about it as a plateau, an exercise plateau, just as you get to three miles and maybe you feel like you got to three miles, once you go to four, it's just as hard as it was to get to three. So it's this constant challenging yourself um, 
and constantly pushing yourself when something is hard that I think adds up ultimately so that at the end of the day you're starting to feel less pressure and less anxiety and less stress when things are hard because you learn how to keep going when things are hard because every you probably know this being young when you're in the gym everyone knows that you know, you hear about the, the plateau that you, you know, if you're weight training, if you're listing 10-pound weights and it's really hard, then eventually it gets easy. Then you go to 12-pound weights. But from my perspective and not being an exercise person, um, it didn't seem natural to me. It, always, it, was, it was always hard when I thought it would be easy. Once marijuana becomes legal... Do you plan in your 60s to explore bringing marijuana into your, you know, your days and maybe marijuana or some psychedelics? So, um, no. <laughs> this is a lightning round. Really? Yeah. Even if it's legal? Oh, no, I don't, I, yeah, it doesn't, they don't appeal to me. It's have you done I'm just being honest. Um, I have done both, actually. Oh. Um, the psychedelic was um, dropped in a, um, a drink. Mm. When I was in high school, I got a job at a bookstore in my community. And um, the owner of that bookstore um, dropped LSD into my soda. And it was, um, it was horrifying. I realized it. I realized something was wrong. And I called my neighbor who I, I trusted, and he came and picked me up, and uh, I kind of stayed, stayed at their house until it got all resolved, and obviously I quit my job. Okay. How did you know you put it in your brain? Um, you know, you're kind of aware of what LSD is, certainly during that time. It never, I would never drop acid. I'm not, a, I'm not the kind of person that is interested in, in an alternate reality. I'm not judging. And in fact, I'm envious of people who are open about that. But I've always been the kind of person who's wanted to be in control. And if I would drink in college, I would want to drink maybe one drink and feel a little bit loose. But I would still want to be in control. That's who I am. Um, maybe... You know, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's not a good thing, but it would never appeal to me to take drugs that would take me out of my reality. But like, it's not, did you I ever don't see, but I knew that it was but, him. Uh, but I knew what <coughs> LSD was because I was aware of it, and so as soon as I started to feel an alternate reality, I had the wherewithal to take action immediately. I should have called the police, but I. I no, I'm know. just wondering if, it, if you weren't just having an episode. Oh, no, no, it was definitely. And did he admit to doing it? I don't. I never did anything about it. I never told my parents. You just quit. Um, yeah. I quit the job. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. More sixties-inspired yeah. questions. <laughs> if you were gonna start a hippie love protest band, uh, do you have an idea of what that band would be called, and what do you have an idea of what like your big song would be? Are you talking about a music band? Yeah, like a band. You're like 60s rock band. If I had a rock band, what would it be called? Mm-hmm. And what would like your main song, like the famous song, be about? Um, well, it would be uh, uh, about endorphins. <laughs> <laughs> See? A natural high. Carolee and, and the endorphins. And Carolee and the endorphins. Oh, nice. um, yeah, is that good? Yeah. And what, okay. And, okay. what instrument would you play? Oh, I would play the drums. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm a Ringo cool. Starr fan. And Trey Cool from Green Day. So the 60s was also a time of free love. And so um, have you ever explored uh, love with another woman? Uh, or when you go into your 60s, do you have any intention of exploring that? 
No, I never have. Um, and uh, no, I have no intention. Um, I did go to a college where it was very open-minded, so I've, ha I've always had friends who were, you know, I've, I've had lesbian friends and, and gay friends, so I'm very open-minded, but I'm definitely heterosexual, there's no question. You ever kissed a girl? <laughs> no. how, do you, how do you know if you're... <laughs> oh, no, I know. <laughs> um, so, 60s was also the decade of protest. Uh, so and activism, and so your your work right now uh, is, you know, like I think we all feel like it's it's a kind of activism. So what does that mean to you? Seeing yourself and what you're writing about, who, what your message is, what is what is the activism behind everything that you're doing? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I would never have described myself as an activist, but where wellness. Um, is concerned with older women, I'm definitely an activist. And I am... You're very active. And I'm very... Um, I feel very passionate about women finding a way to empower themselves to deal with, with what's going on in our lives, both in the world today, in our bodies, and, and just being as prepared as... It's almost like an armor. Just being as prepared as we possibly can be for, for you know the next uh, phase of our lives. How do you feel about the Me Too movement? Well, I feel like it's... Um, I can breathe. Um, I think it's a, uh, it's a long time in coming. I have a lot of anger, um, like many women, um, towards men who... Uh, I, I've never come in contact with men like Harvey, Fire, um, Harvey Weinstein, but thinking about having to be in that environment. And, you know, I'm just like picturing myself as a young woman coming out of college with a passion and a career to be in the entertainment industry and landing a job with such a terrific firm and then having ha this happen to me um, makes me furious, uh, obviously, and a lot of women have that feeling. But, you know, as I've told Aiden, he once asked me about this, I can't think of a time in my adult life where I didn't look over my shoulder. Um, you know, when, when I was in college, uh, even, you know, I was in college in the 70s. If we were, you know, I had a job. Um, you know, I worked in the library. If I were leaving the library late at night, even though it was an enclosed campus, I could call campus security to escort me to my dorm. There was always a fear that I could be the victim of rape at any moment. It was just a matter of timing. Bad luck. Um, when I worked in uh, Washington early on, um, when I when I, I lived in Dupont Circle, I had a day job and I worked at um, Kramer Book and afterwards Cafe. If I did a late shift, which was like like six blocks from Kramer Books to my apartment, I would feel ridiculous taking a cab. So I would walk the six blocks, but I was always aware that I could be a, I could be victimized at any moment. I can't think of a time in my life as a woman where I didn't feel like a man could take advantage of me or overpower me at any moment. And that's actually something that I never really thought about until the Me Too movement. And the fact that I have to live like that because I'm a woman is, is wrong. And so I feel uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the movement, and I'm really interested to see how far it's going to go. Do you have a Me Too memory? You know, sadly, I do have a Me Too memory. And what I know now, I didn't handle it correctly. Um, I was quite young. I might have been, I don't know exactly, somewhere between the age of, like, 13 and 16. Uh, my family uh, went to Florida um, over um, the holidays where my grandparents lived. 
and there were um, six of us, and we couldn't all fit in our car as we got older with luggage. So my parents would often send one or two of us on a Greyhound at the same time. We would leave our house at the same time. They would drive one or two of us to, Port to the Port Authority in New York, and one or two of us would get on the bus, and they would drive to Florida, and we would all meet. Um, I don't know if it's like that today, but in those days, it wasn't a straight shot. You didn't like get on the bus and arrive in Miami. It, it stopped along the way, and often you would change buses. So you would be sitting, and then you would get to another city, and you'd have another seatmate. And there was one time where I was on the bus at night, and I was awoken in the middle of the night by the person next to me fondling me. It was a man. And I remember waking up and feeling, uh, like, you know, astonished and freaked out. Um, but it never would have occurred. I mean, I obviously woke up and he stopped, but I never didn't occur to me to stand up, tell the bus driver, stand, you know, get to the station and call the police. I just made sure I sat next to somebody else on the other bus. But I think that contributes to this feeling that, you know, you are, there's always that opportunity for some man to overpower you. Yeah, and that it's like normalized. It's normalized, yeah. And even you know, you 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 know, women always we we always took precautions. You know, some women carry mace. You're not out late at night. Um, you you know, the phrase was "Don't be stupid." You know, take a taxi, don't walk. Or, um, but the reality is, you could take all those precautions and still be in the wrong place at the wrong time because at any moment you feel like there could be some creepy guy out there you know, ready to overpower you. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Well, this conversation took a turn. <laughs> What's your biggest fear of turning 60? I'm at a crossroad. I, um, I've, I don't think I've ever felt better physically, although when I was younger, your age, you know, in my 20s, I, nobody, I never thought two minutes about it. I mean, I was, I was uh, very lucky to have my health. So I didn't have the kinds of issues that people who, who don't have their health deal with. But I feel really great. Um, I feel very excited to be entering this decade. Um, and I love being around other people my age and, and hearing about some of the experiences that they've had. I do, I've, I've often written about this, but I, I truly believe it. I think that you live all of your ages at one time, sort of like the rings around a tree. So I feel very youthful at times. Certainly my taste in music tends to be youthful. Um, sometimes my taste in clothes tends to be youthful. But I feel like I can live 16 and 60 at the same time and, I, and sort of live... 16 with the benefit of 60, if you know what I'm saying. That's your next um, book, 16 and 60. <laughs> so I, I feel really excited. I don't have any fears. Um, I'm very excited to watch, you know, the two of you and, and Nina and your careers. Um, and I love hearing. I, that's one of the things I think people my generation love about Facebook. And I don't know, maybe you take social media for granted. But for us, I love watching what people are doing and posting all the great things in their life and the sad things too. It's just a great way of connecting. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of social media. It's a big year also because you have a book coming out. I do. I'm very excited about my book. Um, there was a lot of, um, I've heard other authors talk about the experience of titling your book. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth on the title of the book. But at the end of the day, I feel like the publisher really got me, you know, getting my bounce back because ultimately that is exactly what happened. Um, what I say in the book is that when I 
when I began um, journaling my exercise experience, it was really a weight loss journey to begin with, I said I was going to journal and blog so I could keep myself um, on track. And in fact, um, when I decided to blog, I didn't actually know what a blog was, and I actually Googled what is a blog. And then I sort of looked around at other people's weight loss blogs, and that's how I started to, um, to blog about my weight loss journey. That was my first experience. And I, um, I discovered after um, maybe a month or so that I was enjoying the blogging and the writing um, a lot. And that kind of surprised me because it was, it was freeing. It was very liberating because I just wrote from the heart. I really did. And I just wrote what, what I was feeling and what I was thinking, and it took a weight off. Um, and, I, and I didn't really necessarily need people to read it. After about a year of blogging, I decided I wanted to take my writing about wellness uh, to a different level because I was learning so much about exercise science and what it meant to be well that I wanted to write about it so that I could understand it better and also so that if in any way other people could learn from my experience, I would feel um, like I'd done something good. One of my friends asked me, um, you know, what's the difference between wellness and um, exercise? You know, if, if you're, what's the difference between being a wellness writer and being an exercise science writer or a fitness writer? And I don't want to. I don't want to say that this is my own idea because along the way, it's probably someone else's idea. But when I think of wellness, I think of intention. It's an intention about how you want to live, that you want to make a commitment every single day to making healthy lifestyle decisions in the way you eat, in the way you think, in the way you treat other people, and the way you um, you move through your day. And when you have that intention every single day. Um, to live a healthy lifestyle, a positive lifestyle, that's wellness. You have a commitment to being healthy. Um, not every day is a great day, um, either in terms of what you've been able to do in your exercise life or in your nutrition or in your work or in your relations with other people, but you've still got that intention that th this is your commitment. I'm going to live this way. So that's, that's where I am now in my commitment to wellness. And I'm excited about the book um, because it's given me the time to reflect on how far I've come. When I go back to day one or like day 23 and I read about where I was and what I was doing in the gym, it's almost a little bit embarrassing. I mean, I talked about, you know, doing five minutes on the arm bike and like being wiped out. And, that's a lot of people, so that's a... <laughs> it's honest. Yeah, I mean, honest. it was hard work. We, um, a lot of people are there. And I really, I had a lot of trouble getting my nutrition right. Um, and it's really important to eat... Um, to fuel your body appropriately when you're exercising, both for energy and also for recovery. And it took me a long time to get my nutrition right, and I feel really kind of excited looking back at that because it helps me moving forward. So, so is the audience of your book somebody who's at day one, or would somebody who's at day 400 still get something out of it? <laughs> That's a really good question. It's for, the, it's for the, the woman in particular who has woken up one day and is not who she wants to be, and um, has the same interests and love of activities and hobbies and art and music 
as she did 10 years ago, but she doesn't have the energy to participate at the level that she wants. And you know what? 60 is young. I'm hoping, you know, my father's 92 and looking great and feeling great. That's, that's a lot of years ahead of me, and I want those years to be awesome. So my audience is that woman who wakes up and is like, I don't have the energy to do the things that I want to do, even the simple things, and I don't fit into any of the clothes in my closet that I love, that I've bought over the years, and they're hanging in my closet, and they're too tight. And why are they tight, you know? And so I, I, have a lot, I, I, I want those people to, to know that it is not too late to make a difference in how you live. And these are the steps that I took to get to the place where I could shop in my closet and I could wait online at a museum exhibition for three hours without having to sit and feel really good and then go through that exhibition and enjoy it because I'm, I'm, I'm fit. I'm, Rebounced. I, I've bounced back. <laughs> and, and also, I, as we get older, you know, we do face loss in a lot of ways. Big losses, little losses, you know, um, and... And the workplace becomes more challenging as we get older. And I think that you also begin to have um, experience making mistakes and bouncing back and not letting big, big problems, little problems take you down. And I think that as we get older, we need to get good at that because it's, you know, there's going to be more losses along the way. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I, hope, I hope people who already have a, ser a significant exercise habit, if they come across the book and they read it, I hope it makes them laugh mm -hmm. and uh, maybe uh, see some humor in Reminds it. Reminds them where they started. Right, well. yeah. And for, for, for people who don't know how to start, I hope it becomes very helpful and empowering. Very nice. I look forward to seeing it. Thank you. You know, I, I have to just say right at the outset that at the very beginning of my blogging, um, all of you in the room, Julian, I didn't know you then, um, you know, gave me so much positive feedback. You in particular, Nina, um, I remember, and of course Mia and Aiden, without a doubt, every time I posted something, there would always be a positive comment. And, um, and that always, whenever, in the very beginning when I posted my blog, a link on Facebook, I was very nervous about it. I felt very uncomfortable. And then over time, with the support from Mia and Aiden and Nina and your brother Isaac and my other nephews and nieces, constantly making me feel good about it made it easier for me to write and move forward. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank well, I enjoyed you. reading. And I look forward to the book as well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank Happy you. birthday. Happy birthday. Thanks for letting us take over your podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And you know, you can take over my podcast anytime you want. I know. I know. Oh, yes. It's hard for you losing control. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't ask me that question, but that will be part two. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. Good. Love you all. Love you. Love you. Bye. Yay. You've been listening to a production of My Brain on Endorphins. Special thanks to Owen Kelly for mixing and engineering and for the awesome theme music. Thanks for listening.